did you know that early in my tenure here as a, a pastor, when I would come up to preach, there may have been wagers made by some about how long it was going to take for me to begin to roll my shirt sleeves <laughs> in the sermon. If those wagers were made today, you should have taken the under. Because I'm going to get into a rich text this morning. And quite frankly, 30, 40 minutes, not enough time. There are going to be things that we just simply can't touch. But I encourage you to continue your study. That's what these times, uh, these sermon times should really encourage you to do every week, I hope, is, is to dig into the richness of God's word. Never when we preach... Never when we preach are we able to tap into all of the divine truths in any passage of scripture. Uh, the Bible is rich and deserves our study for a lifetime and for eternity, really. So we're going to learn about our infinitely beautiful Savior. Well, we have two questions today that we're going to look at. So that's why I entitled this sermon, Two Questions. Let me begin with a little introductory story. I was one time invited by a couple of guys who were from a theological tradition, a religious tradition, different than my own. Uh, they, they wanted me to come, hang out, they said, and so I did. And when I arrived uh, to hang out, um, it didn't take long for me to realize that we weren't just going to hang out. That, that they had planned an ambush for me. They were ready for me. They had questions that were going to prove that their theological tradition was right. My theological tradition was wrong. I was, I was being ambushed. And if you read through the Gospels, this is true all the time of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is constantly walking into theological ambushes. Now that's where the comparison between me and Jesus ends. We both walked into a theological ambush at some point. He, he into many, me into one at least. And while I was sputtering for answers and trying to seem like I knew what I was talking about, Jesus always has the right response at the right time in the right way for those who would want to ambush him. We're going to see one of those theological ambushes today as a group comes to offer up a question they think will make Jesus look foolish. But Jesus indeed makes them look foolish in the end. Not because he's mean, but because when you have a response from our perfect Savior, it reveals a lot about you. The response reveals a lot about you. Let's read this encounter together. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. Here's what Luke records. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? 
For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to the age, that age, and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. I'll invite you to pray with me before we start to dig into God's word this morning. Will you bow your heads? Lord God, thank you for this rich passage of scripture. Thank you for the Bible. May we never take your word for granted. And we ask that you would help us right now to dig into your word and to understand it and to hear your voice in it. And may your voice speak specifically, each one of us, into our lives. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And we pray for your glory, your honor, and your praise forever. Amen. So we have 21 verses here, and they're governed by the two questions that I mentioned earlier. Two questions governing 21 verses. First question, there's a question for Jesus here. The Sadducees bring a question to Jesus, a question they hope will make him look foolish. So that's the first question, a question for Jesus. We'll look at that first. And then second, there's a question from Jesus. After answering the Sadducees, Jesus throws a haymaker of a question, a haymaker of a question, and and knocks out any opposition. So much so that nobody wants to ask him any questions anymore, because they know that it means certain defeat for them. So let's look at uh, the first question, then we'll look at the second. First, a question for Jesus, verse 27 to verse 40 of the passage. We got to begin by establishing a little bit about the Sadducees. Who were these these guys? Who were these contenders? We don't know much, and actually, most of what we know about the Sadducees we know because of their opponents. 
Uh, Not a lot about them has survived in their own writings, but we know people who position themselves against the Sadducees, and therefore we know a little bit about the Sadducees. And one of the main things we find out, and it's even reflected in this passage, is that these guys did not believe in the resurrection. And one of their main enemies, one of the main parties that was against them, were the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along. Uh, The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that debate bleeds into this interaction with Jesus. That very debate comes into play here as they proffer, the Sadducees proffer, an absurdist question. An absurdist question to Jesus. Maybe the Sadducees think they can win two title fights in one bout. Two heavyweight belts in one bout. Defeating Jesus with this question. At the same time, defeating their arch enemies, the Pharisees. Because if Jesus doesn't have an answer about the resurrection, then the Pharisees aren't any better than he is. Maybe that's why they come with this question. They ask about marriage after death. They're mocking in this question about marriage after death, the resurrection. They're mocking the resurrection. Here's what they say, verse 28 through verse 33. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. So here we go. Hypothetical, right? Absurdist question. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. It's not a sincere question. There's nothing sincere about it. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. This is bait. They're offering bait to Jesus. They're hoping he'll take the bait. They're hoping he'll start to to work out the relationships of these husbands and the one wife into eternity because the very working out of those relationships, they believe, will make Jesus look ridiculous. And they'll win because he looks so foolish. They're hoping that he'll start to tell them how it can be that this woman could be married to seven different men into eternity. They believe this shows that there can be no such thing as the resurrection. You may have encountered something like this. Maybe maybe you want to share the gospel with somebody. Maybe a coworker, maybe a neighbor, I don't know who it is, but maybe you you begin to share the gospel. You you build up courage and you're like, I want to share the gospel with this person. I want them to know who Jesus is. And as you do so, they shift the conversation They want to make it about something on the side. Uh, The Sadducees want to make it about marriage. They maybe want to make it about all those hypothetical people who haven't heard about Jesus. How can God be just if these people haven't heard about Jesus? And, And therefore what they do is they make the gospel seem foolish because hypothetically there are people who will be judged and condemned because they've never heard about Jesus. What kind of God is that? Do you see how they want you to get off to the side on that question, which is a question you might want to talk about with them at some point. It's a question that you could provide at least some answer to, some background to, some thinking upon. But the idea that you would be sidetracked from the main gospel question 
You don't want to let that happen. You don't want to take the bait, so to speak. You want to keep it on Jesus. You want to keep it on them. Not the hypothetical person who exists somewhere around the world right now who will never hear the gospel. That's another question for another day. So maybe you have experienced something like this yourself. That's the the kind of thing that the Sadducees are attempting to do here. I think get Jesus entangled in this conversation about marriage after death in order to make the main question, resurrection, look foolish and silly. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Rather, Jesus exposes their lack of knowledge when it comes to the central conversation concerning the resurrection. To their horror, Jesus stays on topic. Now, at first, Jesus does appear to take the bait. And we have to admit that when he begins to answer, he says some really interesting things about marriage and about eternity and about the nature of things. He says, those who attain to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, verse 35. He says, they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels, verse 36. We could, we could get on a tangent, we could get off track with those things. And oftentimes, I think when I study this passage with other people, they miss Jesus' point in saying these things. And they want to just talk about these things. These things are fine to talk about, but the point that Jesus is making is different than simply about marriage after death or whether we're like the angels or not and how that might look. Jesus' point is to say, you have missed, Sadducees, the very character of things into eternity. You haven't even scratched the surface on what it's going to be like in the resurrection. You have a skewed perspective. They've completely misunderstood the nature of resurrection life. And Jesus wants to make that point. Their thinking is pedestrian. In the slightly modified words of of one of my favorite authors. This is, I think, what Jesus, how he would have looked at the Sadducees. It would seem that Jesus finds the Sadducees' conceptions of resurrection life not too strong, but too weak. They are half-hearted creatures fooling about with thoughts of drink and sex and ambition and marriage after death when infinite joy is being offered to them, infinite resurrection joy. And like ignorant children who can only imagine making mud pies in the slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That's who these Sadducees are. Their minds are very narrow. Their view of eternity is very small. In short, friends, Jesus is telling them they haven't got a clue about resurrection existence. The reality of resurrection life will be utterly different and infinitely more glorious than anything they now experience. You see, they've failed to realize the life to come will be essentially different than this life. The Sadducees can't think past what they experience now. They can't think past this life. They want to import every aspect of this life on a one-for-one basis into the next life. And Jesus says, that's just not the way it is. That's just not the way it is. And I believe because they have such small thinking, this is the sad truth, I believe. 
Because they have such small thoughts about how this life looks and therefore the next life has to look just like this life in some way. They reject the whole idea of a resurrection life altogether. Their hypothetical ideas squelch their belief in the glorious truth of the resurrection. Because they can't wrap their minds around it. Because they think too small. And that's really sad. And we can tend to do the very same thing. It looks a bit different, but it's the same. Let me share a story uh, to show you how I think that we can have a myopic vision of the future. And, and we can think that eternity seems kind of dull. Resurrection life seems kind of small. When I was a kid growing up in the church, um, my pastors and my Sunday school teachers oftentimes would try to express what it would be like in the resurrection or into eternity, the new heavens, the new earth. And, and God bless them. I'm so thankful that they tried. But they would give me things that they thought would communicate to me. They would say something like, we will spend eternity with millions upon millions singing the praises of God forever. All I could think about, because I, I was thinking myopically, was of the Christian concerts that my parents had dragged me to, <laughs> right? Um, like Amy Grant or Michael W. Smith or Petra. Now, if these concerts have blessed you and if that sounds like a great eternity to you, then I am not criticizing you. But for me, as a teenager in the church, that was not exciting in the least. I thought to myself, if that's what eternity is like, I'm not sure I want to be there. If that's what resurrection life is like, that I have to sing like at a Michael W. Smith concert, Friends are Friends Forever, forever? (laughs) That's bad news. And so my small thinking, and quite frankly, even uh, the church's small thinking on that issue did not communicate the glory that was ahead. Do you see how we can do this? We don't want to do this. We need to open up our imaginations. The the smallest glimpse, friends, of really what eternity will be like should have you praying like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, it is so grand. Oh, it is so beautiful. I have just seen a sliver of it. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, now. Usher in that reality right now. That's what it should do to us. Not, hmm, that seems kind of dull. That seems kind of boring. No. It's not. If you need help, if you'd like help expanding your imagination on what the new heaven and new earth are going to be like, what resurrection existence is going to be like, I don't know of any better work than The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. You can read, it's just a sermon. You can read it over and over and over again, and every time it will challenge your thinking. It will stretch your imagination. It will help you to say, the grandest thoughts I could have of what it will be like are too small. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's an encouraging thing. Well, in sharp contrast to the Sadducees' hypothetical, problematic question about these seven brothers and their one wife, Jesus quickly gives a concrete proof from Scripture in support of the resurrection. So let's look at his answer, verse 37 and 38. He says, That the dead are raised, even Moses showed, 
in the passage about the bush, the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Very concrete passage of scripture he points to. He doesn't go hypothetical with him. He says, here, look at this. It proves the resurrection. Now, following this answer, and this is just a little side note, there's a scribe or a couple scribes in the audience. And the scribes were a group that usually sided with the Pharisees, right? And they yell, good job, good answer, Jesus. Like toady scribes, right? And these are, this is one of those moments in scripture where I like to think about what generated that response from people who normally were the opposition of Jesus. And the only thing I can think of for these guys yelling that out is that they were so happy that somebody else was getting it handed to them by Jesus. It's like when my team loses in a crushing defeat, right? Gets blown out by some other team. And all I can hope is that that same team that just blew us out blows out the next team even worse so everybody will forget about how badly we lost. That's what I think is engendering this response from the scribes who are normally against Jesus here. Okay, just something slightly humorous to think about. Total toady move. Nice job. Good answer, Jesus. Don't ask him any more questions. Sadducees look really bad right now. Let's just let them look bad. No more questions. Now, as far as Jesus' answer is concerned, he highlights that God is, is, not was, the God of Israel's patriarchs. Even though the patriarchs he mentions here had died way before Moses is receiving this revelation through the burning bush from God, right? At at that moment in redemptive history, even though these patriarchs were long gone, he is their God. That's the point he's making. The logic is this. If God speaks of himself as Abraham's God, then Abraham still exists. If God is the God of Isaac and Jacob, then they still exist. In short, to experience the promises of the Lord, which he had made to these men, to experience their promises, they must and they will be resurrected. They don't cease to exist. They always exist to God. They are with him now, in fact. And one day they will walk the earth again. That's the logic that Jesus brings to bear here. And and I don't know if we normally can take this in very well in our day and age. This is a mic drop moment. We are supposed to see the brilliance, the beauty, the glory of Jesus' answer. He is dropping the mic. Nobody wants to ask him any more questions. You may not see that. You're supposed to. You're supposed to see the glory of our Savior. The worship-worthy nature of Jesus. This is no mere man. Mere men, like your pastor, when they walk into an ambush like this, don't have these kinds of answers. Only Jesus does. Only God does. And we're supposed to recognize that. So don't miss that in the text. Well, let's move briefly to the second question. A question from Jesus. This could be a sermon in and of itself or a couple of sermons. Jesus has a question now for the Sadducees. 
Now, while the Sadducees' question deals with the nature of the resurrection, right? Let's talk about the nature of the resurrection. Jesus' question deals with the nature of the Christ, the nature of the Messiah. He's challenging the Sadducees to rethink their vision of the Messiah. And so he quotes David from the Psalms. I'm going to read verse 42 and 43, which is that quote in today's passage. Here's what Jesus says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So everybody there that day would have agreed. This is a messianic passage. That David is inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, to talk about, to reveal something about the coming Messiah. Everybody there would have agreed upon that. All right? So you got to know that. David was speaking, though, in this passage of the Lord God, speaking to the Messiah. But when David is envisioning this conversation between the Lord God and his Messiah, he calls the Messiah, my Lord. David says, he's my Lord. And that's crazy. That's crazy. It's strange. And, and, and Jesus is saying, you need to rethink how you have envisioned this Messiah. What does he look like? What does the Christ look like? I don't think you have a big enough vision. Your imaginations haven't been big enough in how you've thought about him. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He wants to know from them how it is that the Messiah can be called by David, his great, 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 great grandfather, Lord. And this would even be strange for us in our time. It would be really weird. I have five children. And and my kids could win the Nobel Prize in every single area that it's offered. They could form an elite SEAL team. SEAL Team 5, right? And save the world. And after all of that is done, I will not call, and I never will call, them Lord. They'll still be my sons and my daughters. They're just going to be my kids. I am their dad. But that's not what David does. David says, my Lord. How? Jesus wants to know. Well, Jesus is the Messiah by his own admission. Jesus is saying you need to rethink your conception of the Messiah. And I think very clearly David is, David is saying, I mean, Jesus is saying, David saw more clearly than you see. The Messiah is bigger than you can imagine. Not just a man, not just a great king, not just a conqueror, but God in the flesh. So that David, the greatest king in Israel, can cry out, my Lord, my Lord, my God. And then Jesus does something that seems really strange to us because without allowing them to answer that question, although they're not probably going to because they're a little bit gun shy, he goes directly into a rebuke in the hearing of everybody. He pauses and he looks at his disciples and he teaches in the hearing of everybody about the scribes, these religious leaders. Here's what he says, verse 46 and 47. 
Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Why did Jesus go into this rebuke immediately? Why? Why does Jesus seemingly shift gears so quickly? Let me just say right now, I don't think he's shifting gears. I think he's setting up a contrast. And and I think when we see the contrast, it is truly beautiful. It is glorious, in fact. He's just talked about re-envisioning the greatness of the Messiah. How great the Messiah is. You don't have imaginations big enough, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, for the greatness of the Messiah. David even calls him Lord. You got to tell me why that is. You haven't thought about him rightly and his glory. And then Jesus says, beware of the kind of glory, the kind of honor, the kind of praise that the scribes and the Sadducees and the Pharisees crave. He says this to his disciples in their earshot. Hey, be careful of that. Why does he do that? Because before them, in the flesh, stands the Messiah. And what kind of glory is he exemplifying for them? What kinds of things is he all about? Is he all about uh, receiving the honor that he deserves at this moment? Is he all about taking what's his, getting everything that he can get? Is he all about being in the spotlight all the time? No. Here's the greatest of the greats. Here's Jesus Christ standing before them. And his greatness is characterized by sacrifice. His greatness is characterized by humility. His greatness is characterized by going where no one wants to go and saving even his enemies. That's divine greatness. In contrast to the human greatness that these scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees are pursuing. Be careful of that. Be careful of that. What's the nature of the greatness of the Messiah? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's the greatness of the Messiah? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What's the nature of the greatness of the Messiah? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through verse 8, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. There are countless verses in Scripture which outline the greatness of the Messiah, the greatness of Christ Jesus. And none of those verses are selfish in nature. None of them smack of greed or of ego. And that's the character of divine greatness. And that's the contrast that Jesus is setting up here for his disciples. And not just for them, but for you too. If you want to be great, you have to be like Jesus. You can't be about your own honor. You have to be about the honor and the glory and the majesty of God. 
That's true greatness. And that's greatness that will live on into eternity. Amen. Amen. Let me pray that that's the kind of greatness we would be about. We bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this deep, rich passage of Scripture. And, and I apologize, Heavenly Father, that I was only able to tap so much that's in it. Just a little bit for right now. But I pray that the words won't be lost on us. The ideas will take root in us and grow humility and sacrifice and love for enemy in your people here at Community Free Church. And I pray that you would be the one that we always point to and say, yours is the honor and the glory forever and ever. Not mine, but yours, Lord. Amen.